You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and in this episode, we are talking to Meg Massey and Hannah Patterson. Um, now, it's a bit of a different one, this, uh, than normal, in that I was having interesting conversations with both Meg and Hannah uh, about coming on the podcast, and, and we were talking about similar subjects in terms of sort of participatory methods in philanthropy and social investment. And then it turned out Meg and Hannah were also having uh, conversations, and I think we managed to join the dots and realise that we were all talking about the same stuff, and that it might be good to join those up and have a conversation about participatory methods that kind of covered a bit of both of their work. Um, so that's what we did. Um, so Meg is uh, an author and writer, um, and particularly she's the author of a book that's just come out called uh, Letting Go, uh, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors Can Do More Good by Giving Up Control, which she's co-written with Ben Robel. Um, and that's all about, as the title might suggest, um, the kind of new focus on participatory methods in uh, philanthropy and social investment, uh, some of the challenges that poses, some of the opportunities it brings up. And we talked to Meg quite a bit about what's in the book during the podcast. Uh, and Hannah is a senior portfolio manager at the National Lottery uh, Community Fund here in the UK and has been working on participatory grant making for quite a while and has just recently launched a new community of practice and and sort of somewhere that people can exchange ideas all about participatory grant making, um, which, you know, as you'll hear again during the conversation, has garnered a lot of interest among uh, the foundation world and the grant making community. Um, so we had a great chat. Um, we talked, obviously, about sort of participatory methods, why perhaps they had be, uh, become more prominent in thinking recently, whether uh, a lot of the rhetoric was actually being matched by action on the ground or whether it was mostly just talking about participation at the moment. Uh, we talked about why it's very difficult to say the word participatory and whether we need to to get away from uh, that language. Um, We talked about where the barriers to wider adoption of participatory methods among more traditional organisations might be. Um, We discussed what the rationale might be for for adopting these methods, whether it was about sort of believing that they have value in themselves because they shift power and it's kind of the right thing to do, or whether it's more about the fact they deliver better outcomes. Um, We talked in sort of practical terms about what the actual models and approaches you can use if you want to get into participatory brand making are. Um, We talked about some of those issues to do with uh, recognising different types of knowledge um, and what that might mean in terms of the power dynamics between funders uh, and grantees. Um, and we talked about how uh, this new focus on participation relates to the sort of wider phenomenon of interest in grassroots movements and social movements uh, that harness the power of the internet and, and how this might see participation playing an even bigger role in thinking about philanthropy in the future. So without further ado, let's go into the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I will be back at the end for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. So I'm here with Meg Massey and Hannah Patterson. Hi to both of you. Hi. 
Hi. And uh, this is a slightly unusual one for the podcast in that we're both you're both here to talk uh, about the same topics. So we're talking about kind of participatory grant making and shifting power. And we were having sort of separate conversations and we managed to, to join the dots on it and thought it made sense to have all of us in one place having a, having a conversation, which I think is great. Um, but it might make sense for both of you to kind of introduce yourselves separately. So, um, Meg, maybe you could go first and, and say a bit about kind of your background and what brings you to these issues. And particularly, I know you've got a book um, coming out, I think, or maybe already out. Uh, officially coming out on Monday, uh, April 26th. Yes, uh, the book is called Letting Go, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors Can Do More Good by Giving Up Control. And it's about participatory funding. So both participatory grant making and uh, community-led impact investing. And I co-authored it with Ben Robel, who works at Village Capital, which does a peer-selected investment, a form of community-led investing. And uh, the idea for the book came out, I, I've been working more, more on the impact investing side for several years, but had always, um, and also in some public policy work on, um, on social issues and was very struck by how top down so much the decision-making was. It was a lot of very well-intentioned people in you know, essentially ivory towers deciding how to help people whose experience they did not share. And when Ben and I met in 2019, we got to discussing this and really wanted to understand what other alternatives were out there. And that was the, uh, the genesis of the book. Great. And yeah, certainly want to pick up on, on plenty of that in the, the conversation. And Hannah, maybe you could say a bit about, um, about what you're working on at the moment and kind of where your interest in participatory uh, stuff comes from. Yeah, so um, I kind of fell into funding. Um, I originally was involved in uh, disabled people's organising and campaigning in the UK. Um, and the mantra for disabled people's movement is nothing about us without us, which is kind of a value set that I've held held on to. Um, and then landed in funding um, and like Meg started to question kind of how, how communities are involved in decision making, um, how power around where funding um, decisions were made sit so far away from kind of the issues and solutions that we're trying to create and actually what is the the magic that can happen when um, when communities are in the room around those decisions so ended up starting um, or, or trialing some work at the National Lottery Community Fund um, with the Leaders of Lived Experience program which was a completely uh, co-designed uh, funding program um, looking at supporting those with first-hand experience of a social issue who were using that experience to create change for others in a similar place um, and used a participatory model for that and in the design of the program uh, started to explore and understand kind of this uh, uh, quite large world of funders looking at participatory grant making and how to shift power in decision making um, and was really lucky enough uh, in 2019 to do a uh, Churchill fellowship where I got to travel to South Africa and the US to explore best practice in participatory grant making in those spaces uh, with a hope to bring that back to the UK um, and then the pandemic hit um, so a lot of that work has kind of actually um, it's it's opened doors and enabled us to kind of develop more kind of international uh, community around uh, participatory grant making uh, which is really exciting so we've got about 300 funders who are involved in that space um, and we're you know always looking for more people who are interested in learning more or testing um, or trialing or or who are already using participatory grant making to um, to get involved. 
Um, yeah, and it's something I wanted to pick up on there. Um, uh, that obviously, I mean, I think we're all agreed that we think participatory methods, both in grant making and sort of more broadly in social finance, are really powerful and interesting. And it feels like there's a lot of positive rhetoric about that in in the world of philanthropy and sort of civil society at the moment. I guess my first question was how much of that is still just rhetoric and how much of it is actually being put into practice? And linked to that, have you seen shifts, do you think, during the pandemic of people become more open to actually experimenting with with some of these approaches? Uh, maybe Hannah, if you could take that first. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think there's definitely been shifts in um, the, the pandemic has shifted things. I think uh, everybody being put into lockdown and kind of attempting to move money much quicker um, than we necessarily would have has kind of shone a, a light on and a bit of a mirror up to uh, funders um, to help them kind of understand that actually they they probably don't know as much about the communities and the community needs and they they thought they might before the pandemic, uh, which in turn has kind of enabled people to explore kind of different ways of, of accessing um, and using community wisdom um, to be able to make better decisions. So I think that has shifted. I think also the, the need to move extremely quickly has also changed risk appetites um, and kind of due diligence processes for a lot of organisations and funders, whereas that's been possibly a bit of a blocker in the past. Uh, we've removed stuff very quickly from, from, um, from ways of working that have kind of like maybe caused um, issues in the past, which have opened lots of doors. And I mean, the community of practice in itself is a really good example. We started in March um, last year uh, with 12 people on a phone call being like, I'm doing participatory grant making, Are you're doing participatory grant making, this is exciting, we should talk. Um, and within a year, there's 300 odd people involved in that. We have regular monthly uh, meetings with kind of on average about 60 to 80 participants each month. Um, there's definitely a growing um, um uh, movement behind behind the approach I think the question about whether that's rhetorical action is one that we can't really answer and although there's lots of people talking about it um, and lots of kind of maybe uh, frontline staff within foundations desperate to embed um, or enact some of these tools it's difficult to know um, or understand uh, comprehensively who has managed to shift stuff or practice stuff in different ways um, and I think there's probably a bit of a gap in in the research um, but having said that Meg's been doing some incredible um, surveys with some of our membership in the community of practice to understand a bit more about kind of where they're at. Yeah I'd love to hear about that Meg. Yes um, the participatory grant making community that's that's been an extraordinary um, an extraordinary group to come out of um, you know, to come out of the, the last year when, the pan, as Hannah said, the pandemic definitely accelerated that shift. Um, the surveys that we've been doing for the group members, we wanted to get an understanding of who was coming into this group of 300 odd people and what was motivating them. And so we, um, we were asking, you know, what type of grant maker they worked for, how much, um, how much they typically gave out in grants annually, you know, within a range, and also what types of participatory processes they were putting in place and whether we were talking about a single program that ran a participatory process or um, uh, grant makers like Mama Cash in Amsterdam that have gone 100% participatory. And just trying to get a real sense of what, you know, 
what, what this whole universe looks like, which was building on some of the themes that Ben and I identified in the book. And what we were finding is that there, you know, there's a whole range of different practices, which Hannah with, um, you know, with her, um, with her extensive research can probably speak to in more detail. But what we were finding is that, you know, the majority of the people in this group represent grant makers that are already doing this in to some degree or another. And that I think is the most, that's a really exciting shift to see and to have concrete evidence behind. Uh, one thing that um, came up a lot in our research of the book is that when we, you know, when we would speak to, to grant makers, to foundation leaders in the US, the UK and elsewhere in the world, nobody has anything bad to say about, you know, engaging the community, empowering communities, making the hard decisions. But when it came to action, we were finding that they were kind of stuck in this um, still a one-way form of communication. There's um, a methodology that um, back in the 1960s, um, an American social scientist named Sherry Arnstein came up with called the Ladder of Participation. And it groups um, civic engagement. There's you know, non-participation at the bottom, which is just you know, you're being told information and there's no, this is happening and there's no feedback, there's no opportunity to weigh in at all. Then you have what is, um, uh, what she called tokenism or actually feedback, which is when, you know, the, um, the community may be asked to fill out a feedback survey or give their opinion, but there's, crucially, there's no guarantee that anything will be done with that information. You know, think about how many times you filled out like a customer satisfaction survey. You have no idea what's going to, you know, what's going to come of that if anyone's going to read your response or do anything about it. And then you have, um, and then you have civic power at the top of this ladder of participation, which is where there is not only are, is that input being solicited, but it has, it's very clear how it will be used. And gradually the people in the community have more and more power. So what we're what we were seeing is that uh, while a lot of the rhetoric um, is from organizations that may still be in the um, tokenism space, we're starting to see that shift to that actual decision making um, to the uh, to the citizen power step at the top of the ladder, and that um, that shift is what we chronicle in the book, and it's it's incredibly exciting to see. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it, it does feel as though when we use the term, you know, participation or participatory grant making and, and using the word participatory so many times in one conversation is quite yeah. challenging. But, um, it's but a horrible good, word to say it, and spell. It is really hard, isn't it? I know, I know. It's, it's really, it's quite, yeah, quite stressful. Um, but it feels as though there's, there's definitely a spectrum, as you say, of kind of different approaches and different levels of, of participation do you think that that's one of the things that, that you kind of need to help um funders who are getting involved in this understand and, and do that is you know is there perhaps a barrier if they feel as though it's almost a sort of all or nothing thing and that the only option is to go totally 100 percent participatory or not do it at all uh, right and that that was something that we tried to outline towards the end of the book because you know we we saw that we saw the growing interest, but that we also saw that exact concern that you raised that people were, especially who work for these very large institutional foundations that, you know, they're very bureaucratic. They, even if they really wanted to, they can't shift their grant making process overnight. So what we tried to lay out um, in the latter half of the book is, you know, here are the steps you can take. Yes, you can't overhaul your process in one night, but here's, here's a first step you know, who is on your, who is on your grant making committee? 
how are you setting criteria for particular programs? How are you, um, you know, who's setting your priorities and identifying points at which communities can be brought into that decision making with the idea of a gradual build towards a greater shift. Um, I mentioned Mama Cash in Amsterdam, and that's essentially what they did. They had, you know, they were, they're a women's fund. They had traditionally been by and for activists. So they already had that ethos, you know, built into their model. But they initially, you know, they experimented with a pilot fund for a particular type of, um, for one of their grant making programs. They started to expand it. They did a, you know, multi-year process engaging with their, um, with, you know, with the communities that they serve and their stakeholders and ultimately made that transition to being fully participatory. But it took, um, but it, it, they did it in a very gradual way that I hope is, um, I think is a really useful model. Um, Hannah, I would love to hear about your, you know, more about your experience at National Lottery Community Foundation. Yeah, and we're, we're testing a lot of participatory approaches. Like this isn't necessarily a new way of working. We've had um, small little pilot pots of, um, of funding that have kind of really put communities at the heart of, of what they're doing. And some of that actually wasn't that small. So Big Local was a, as a good example of, of um, an endowment that provided money to communities to be able to decide uh, what that what that should be. That was, I think, um, a significant investment. We've had smaller kind of community vote-esque models. So we've done stuff in the Crocker Valley um, in Torquay. Um, that has looked at communities coming together and deciding uh, where funding should go. Um, I've obviously worked on the Leaders of Lived Experience programme, which is now um, in its second round of funding. So collaboratively over the two rounds, we've had um, over 60 grants and about um, just under 3 million has gone into um, lived experience leaders through that process. Uh, we've had the Phoenix Fund, uh, which is looking at supporting, uh, for want of a better term, uh, Black, Asian, minority and ethnic organisations, um, and particularly organisations that are led by those communities that was uh, developed and designed um, during the pandemic by um, staff members at the National Lottery um, in collaboration with um, some incredible sector leaders, particularly kind of Yvonne Field from um, Ibeli and um, Shane Ryan from, from the Lottery who were kind of leading on that work and a lot of wealth and wisdom from, from others that have gone into that space. And we've got some other kind of like bits of um, pilot funding that are kind of going on at the moment. So looking at kind of how does youth voice feed into our decision making? Um, we've got uh, our young people in the lead uh, projects which not only feed into our funding but look at how young voice um, uh, influences our strategies and decision making um, how they are involved in different aspects of the fund so we've we've taken a similar approach where actually we we're, uh, we're developing the practice and evidence base through kind of pilot programs looking now at, at what are we what do we know because of these things what have they achieved what has changed um, how does this look as we move forward? How does this support kind of our ambitions to enable communities to thrive? Um, and I mean, I'm a little bit biased because obviously I've done a lot of work in this space. I think that's the case, but I don't think we can, with any certainty at this point, say how or or um, or in what way. So we're, we're doing the work now to kind of like gather and share the learning from those pilots um, and the pilots that are upcoming so that we can have kind of like really good evidence to be able to demonstrate actually this is the impact of the work um, and that's how we've done it as quite a big um, funder. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there about, you know, part of the, the whole approach of, of, of uh, participatory methods is is about engaging people with lived experience. It, it always strikes me that that's great as an ambition, but actually brings quite a lot of practical challenges, particularly for sort of more traditional institutions. Um, can, can you say a bit about sort of what you have found in terms of some of those challenges and how you've kind of navigated them um, to, you know, to avoid uh, some of the issues with kind of awkward power dynamics or just some of the practicalities of sort of bringing people in and expecting them to sort of represent a wider community, which is in itself sometimes a bit problematic? Yeah, and I think that's obviously something that we've grappled with through the design of the of, of many of the funding programmes. And I think this is where the difference um, with our participatory grant making work lies, is that actually it, we're not just inviting people to our table. It's about how do we completely redesign the process. So the Leaders of Lived Experience programme, we had uh, workshops across the whole of the UK in, in Derry, Belfast, Glasgow, Cardiff, Manchester, um, with over 70 lived experience leaders um, and we then took 17 lived experience leaders away for a very fun um, and sunny uh, two days in Milton Keynes um, surrounded by concrete and roundabouts um, to work out kind of like actually what does this what does this look like and and it was a it was the most incredible messy complicated joyful um confusing two days as uh we really did kind of a blank canvas design approach we knew that the funding program was there to support lived experience leaders um but we didn't have any other parameters um and we spent two days as as a collective working out what the application process should be what the priorities should be what the eligibility criteria should be how decisions should be made what grant management looks like how we'd communicate with communities around that which was a very different place for I think us to be um part of that is about kind of like how do you bring in the head and the heart and how do you kind of like recognize where knowledge and insight comes from and use all of that in meaningful participation and how do you enable people to feel able to discuss disagree um, not necessarily come to consensus sit in conflict um, and like do that in, in a way that's engaging and supportive and accessible rather than um, just a bit of a bun fight. Yeah, absolutely. And is it something that you um, sort of cover in the, the book as well, Meg, about kind of, um, you know, practical ways in which when when funders or others who are wanting to use participatory methods engage people and communities for their lived experience, they can do that in a way that ends up being positive for everyone? Yes, we um, we profile a number of participatory grant makers that are doing exactly that to try to, you know, really make it um, make it real for the reader what what this actually looks like. Um, one of the examples that comes to mind is the Disability Rights Fund. Uh, they're a global uh, they're a global grant maker led by and for disability rights activists. They're um, a movement builder. And they, um, we interviewed their uh, founder, Diana Samarasan, who talked at great length about all the different ways that they were bringing in the um, different, um, different parts of the disability community, disabled community, because disability is not a single identity, which I think makes, made it a particular challenge. And one reason why it, you know, why we were so grateful that we could highlight it because you know there are people who are born with a disability who acquire one later. There's being physically disabled. There's um, 
you know, mental or um, mental types of disability. There's, there's so many different ways that that identity um, presents itself for people and how it intersects with race, with class, with gender, with, with sexual orientation. So she talked about having to be in, you know, basically in constant conversation with the community to think about who is not at the table right now. Um, she had a wonderful quote that I'll paraphrase, but basically are the people who are making, who are on our grant making committee, yes, they might be part of the, you know, they, they're people with disabilities, but are they the people with the best English? Are they the people who are, you know, will always show up for every single volunteer opportunity? Who, who are we excluding even as we're trying to be inclusive? And a refrain that we kept coming back to as we spoke with her and with other leaders is that the process is really the point. Um, participation is not something that you do once and you can set it and forget it. It's something where you have to be in constant engagement. And so she spoke about you know, um, how they connected with networks in different countries who represented, as I said, different um, different types of disability um, who were in different, um, different parts of society. And that's, that's a difficult process. But what they led with was this intention. They were really, they, um, going back to the ladder of participation, they, they, it was very clear that the people who came in to participate in this process, that their opinion would matter. They wouldn't be asked to give their time for free for something that you know, for something that may end up in a dustbin. They were they were compensated for their time, which is something we can talk about um, a little bit later, but they were also, she was able to go to them and say, we've, you know, here's all the voices that have designed our process. Here's what it looks like. Here's the role you will play. You will play and here's the results that you can generate and giving people that, that sense of ownership um, again, it's it's a tricky process, but that's what has yielded results for them. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting your point there about, you know, to some extent, the process being the point, because it makes me one of the questions I wanted to ask was, what what different views do you do you find on the the rationale in people's minds for why they might want to to adopt a participatory process? Is it is it always that the, the participation itself is sort of the end and uh, that that is what they're aiming for and the value comes from from the process or are there others who sort of see it more instrumentally as this is a better way of getting overall outcomes through our grant making or do people actually have both of those in mind so we we call these the outside and the inside arguments in the book because we were finding that one or both would end up being the most compelling for different um for different leaders uh, the inside argument is um, is that idea that if you engage people with lived experience who will be receiving that service or part of you know uh, purchasing that product, whatever the case may be, you know you are going to get a more efficient and effective result, right? People will people will feel invested. You will have you will it will lead to better outcomes. It's this very kind of practical. Um, in a lot of ways, data-driven approach. And for some, for some leaders, that is going to be what convinces them to try this, that they just think they think it will yield better results. And then there's what we call the outside argument. And that's the moral argument that you're talking about, that you know, there is a bigger question here about equity and who is making decisions for whom and who really has a right to make those decisions. And you know they can. It's very easy for again, even the most well-intentioned leader to end up being you know very top-down, tone-deaf, paternalistic without intending to, because you know they simply don't have the experience that these people have 
and they're the ones who are going to be, you know, most affected by these decisions. And that is where you get into, you know, the sort of very tricky philosophical questions about power dynamics. It's where people, because most leaders are also, you know, overwhelmingly likely to be, you know, they're likelier to be white, they're likely to be male, um, cisgendered, able-bodied from, from the West or the global North, um, that it brings in a whole set of questions about their own privilege and their willingness and preparedness to reckon with them, I think ends up being that ends up sort of dictating how effective the argument is. So in some cases, it's you start with that inside argument about efficiency and effectiveness, and then you build to that equity argument, that outside argument. Um, other times you do get leaders who are, you know, really, truly trying to do the work and committed to engaging in the process for those equity reasons, and they can dive in with, with that mindset. Yeah, and, and Hannah, I mean, how does that sort of chime with what you've seen in the the community you've built around participatory grant making in terms of how people are thinking about the the rationale for for this stuff? Yeah, one of the first things that we often, um, or I often ask people when they're kind of starting out on the journey, is like, what is the driver for? For the work that you're doing and we kind of see that as kind of external from the organization so you might find that um so for example conversations around decolonizing wealth or uh diversity of decision makers or uh campaigns by um organizations or movements such as charities so white that might be a driving force to push an organization to doing participatory grant making but there might be an, also the kind of internal drivers for that so things like trying to get to good stuff rather than just good bid writers participatory grant making is a good way to do that there's stuff around you know improving practice and knowledge about a local area what's important to communities um what they kind of value and 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 want to fund um there might be stuff around you know accountability and transparency and building that up within the areas or the places that you're that you're working and being able to identify kind of like what it is that's pushing the organization to be able to use participatory grant making is a really good way of then helping you work out which model of participatory grant making you might want to use because there are lots of different ways of doing participation and we've talked a little bit about like one how horrible participation is to say and spell uh, but also how um how participation can show up in different spaces and it goes back to the ladder of participation actually are you embedding participation in the decision about where funding should or shouldn't go or are there other spaces and places within the kind of philanthropic cycle of funding where participation might be included so as I say kind of like the um, strategy behind a funding decision are people involved in the evaluation and monitoring of grants that have been made are they involved in the point where you say yes or no to a grant are there other pinch points or decision points in the process leading up to that that a community might be involved in is that something to do with kind of the sifting or uh, first look at applications you know what is the outreach work that a funder is doing into communities how are communities involved in that um, all of these different spaces or, or um, kind of pinch points that participation could be embedded um, are different ways of kind of responding to that driver and what that looks like and and really understanding what model could be used to enable you to achieve that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think that point about there being sort of different places and different decision points where you can adopt participation again goes to I think what we were saying earlier about there being a sort of spectrum and lots of different ways of, of doing this because they seem to me quite sort of fundamentally different. The being being involved in a participatory 
regulatory process where the, the overall strategy has already been set is very different from having a sort of entirely blank canvas and being involved in in setting that that strategy. Um, I mean, one thing I wanted to ask, which I guess is kind of a you know big picture question about this stuff, is that it, it often strikes me that although it feels very positive as an idea and and the idea of sort of shifting power is one that lots of people are very much um kind of interested in and generally want to make happen in in the funding world there is a kind of fundamental challenge to the existing models that we have most of them of of funding in that it sort of you know it gets away from the idea that there is some exalted expertise locked up in in the funder and actually the more that you kind of shift the the power fully towards um, you know the recipients of the grantees in terms of decision making it requires a huge amount of letting go of ego uh, and the sort of stories we tell about what what makes for success as a funder do you, have you found kind of culturally that that is difficult either for the people sort of making the grant making decisions or the people who are leaders of, of organizations meg maybe you could take that um yes <laughs> we, we, <laughs> yeah. we've absolutely found that found that that is a challenge it gets at um I mean, we lead off the book by talking about the phenomenon of billionaire philanthropy, which, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, these um, mostly men who make billions of dollars, um, usually in something tied to technology. And particularly in the United States, I can't speak to the rest of the world, but there is this idea that, you know, you can, you you can, we're the land of opportunity, you can make as much money as you want. And there's a lot uh, there's a lot of issues with that as a statement but like with that that's still very culturally strong and so when you get these men who make who become billionaires in that system and they've done it by you know working 23 hours a day and you know doing all the all the tech things that happen i don't <laughs> um you end up with people who sort of have a sense of you know well i can do anything i'm now going to put my energy into philanthropy because look at me, I built, I built Amazon, I built Facebook, I built Uber, whatever. And you might be really good at building a technology platform. That doesn't mean you know, in Mark Zuckerberg's case, how to fix the public education system in Newark, New Jersey. Like those are, those are just different skill sets and they require different types of knowledge and expertise. And I think that, and we, for a while at least, I think the financial crisis now, the pandemic has changed that conversation enormously, at least in the US. Um, but you had this sense of, you know, those, those people who have become billionaires and are giving their money away, you know, they're, they're demigods. They've, you know, they, they were sort of have this celebrity status, which goes back to, you know, in the US during the Gilded Age, when you had the first run of uber wealthy people who created modern philanthropy because they were held up as these you know they've achieved the ultimate american dream they've made all this money and look at them now they're giving it away like good people but there's so much paternalism baked into that and even though it's a hundred years later we're still seeing that play out with this idea that if you may manage to make a billion dollars because you invented something then obviously you know how to solve all of these social problems. And even if you're, you know, someone like Bill Gates, who's genuinely well-intentioned and, you know, has, has done good with his foundation, you still don't have that lived experience. You're still speaking from, you're still speaking from up on high, even if that's not how you see yourself. So that's, that's a bit of a long answer and there's so much cultural stuff there to unpack, but yeah, that is, it's a huge challenge. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, certainly when you're you know talking about individual elite philanthropy uh, and definitely historically up then up to the the modern uh, day, actually a lot of those issues around paternalism and I guess the mythos of the sort of self-made billionaire and the fact that that it's assumed that whatever it was that led you to become wealthy in the first place automatically translates into having some insight into intractable social problems that everyone else doesn't I think yeah it it does lend itself to an approach to philanthropy that that can be problematic when we're talking about shifting power and Hannah I don't know if you if you've got any sort of you know view from the the people you've talked to here in the the UK about what their you know what resistance there might be there to to the reality of letting go of power. Yeah, I think it's a really it's an interesting conversation that I think we often lose the nuance of because it's much easier to say like there's loads of egos, nobody's shifting, but I think that then takes away from lots of um lots of people that are attempting to make the change. I think what I found particularly fascinating is the assumptions that we sometimes make about why people don't want to do participatory grant making are not the reasons why they're doing them. And I think being really, really like having the honest conversations about what that is can be really fascinating for the funders. So for example, like my organization has been really, really uh, receptive to participation um, within our funding, within our decision-making the issues that I've come about are not because of decision makers wanting to sit on that power. It's been around actually the kind of legal and governance setup of the organisation and how that can, um, um, how that can, well, how we can work within that, um, within our kind of accountabilities to the public purse, because National Lottery Community Fund, our money is public. It comes from those that play the lottery. Um, we are kind of regulated by government. We're accountable to government. So that's been the kind of blocker for ours. And there's some incredible, um organizations and foundations and funders across the UK that I wouldn't want to kind of lump in as as people that aren't aren't kind of attempting to do that so Blargrave is a really good example Edge Fund is an excellent example um these people exist um and also that fund funds I don't know we, we sometimes reduce funding organizations down to the person at the top whereas I think there's probably mixtures of opinions within uh within foundations and I'm not saying that egos aren't a big thing like there are lots of people that don't want to give up power um and I think challenging that is really important but I don't want to take away the kind of complexity of like these are often massive big systems of like uh, teams of people working in spaces um, and some of them are, are, are trying to shift and some of them might be blockers and trying to unpick some of that is helpful I think to the conversation absolutely absolutely yeah I think I mean I think that's a really uh, good point I think your your point there about um, challenges around accountability is really interesting as well because then it's you know it's something that's a a question that's raised about you know, philanthropy and, and certainly sort of foundation philanthropy in general, where that accountability lies. And as you say, the lottery has a particular issue in that it's dealing with taxpayer money um, uh, in some sense. Um, but actually, the more that you're involving people in participatory approaches, there is a question about, you know, how appropriate it is to devolve accountability to them and how you do that or whether the role of the funder is to sort of hold on to the accountability whilst devolving power and actually... There is a challenge there, I guess, in that if you feel like you have less control over decision making, but you're being asked to take accountability for those decisions, that probably feels like a very challenging thing for a lot of funders. So, um, yeah, I think it's a re- you know it's a really interesting um, point, and it makes me think of something else actually, which is you know a question I wanted to ask again about you know the the big picture view of this, which is 
in the conversations that you've had trying to kind of explain to people the potential for participatory approaches and, and why they might want to adopt them, have you got any sense yourself of where the limits might be of, of adopting those approaches, if, if indeed there are limits? Do you think there are places in which actually non-participatory methods for various reasons might still be better? Or should the ambition be for eventually all grant making to be done on a participatory basis? Um, Meg? Do you want to take that? Um, yeah, we we started with um, we started with the goal that Edgar Villanueva lays out in decolonizing wealth that at least fifty percent of capital um, should be um, should be uh, you know decisions about it should be made by the people most effective. So he's aiming for a fifty percent number. Um, there are some situations that we identified in um, in our research where participatory grant making doesn't make doesn't make as much sense but it really was more tied to um you know disaster funding if there's not already a participatory process in place when it comes to giving out you know true emergency funding like you know a, a shelter for people who are displaced by a fire to stay for the night things like that where we're not we're talking about things need to happen in a matter of hours obviously that's not a time to step back and design a participatory process but if you have one in place it can be extremely effective there um there are also some grant making um around like medical research um i have a good friend who's a virologist who has been working on the pandemic and obviously she has a PhD in viruses and so there are certain decisions where yeah it makes sense for her and her research team to be you know they they have they have very specialist specialized um scientific knowledge that's necessary but again with you know in that same example with things like vaccine distribution participation can be extremely helpful in deciding um you know how to best work with communities to you know get vaccines or whatever else distributed so what we found, and I'm curious for Hannah has views on this, but what we found is that, you know, while there were times where um, setting up a process doesn't make sense for meeting that exact urgent moment, in general, building in at least um, at least some of that, um, bringing in at least some voice is never it's never a bad idea. Um, there may be times when the voices also need to include those of, you know, again, scientific medical experts, or again, where that process shouldn't be designed in the, you know, heat of like a hurricane, a flood, something like that. But by and large, there's not really a downside that we found. I mean, I think that point there about, it goes to something you were saying earlier on, I think, about the different types of expertise as you're bringing kind of lived experience and and how you balance those um so yeah in terms of what meg was saying there is that something that you found as well yeah i think i would uh, i would echo that i think there's probably a little bit more i would add with regards to um i think when you shouldn't use parties you got making is when you're gonna and I suppose this goes back to like what is the meaning and definition of parties you're making. But if you're going to do it really badly and you're just bringing in communities so that you can say that you're doing parties you're making, um, then that's when it will all go a bit tits up. And actually, it's not. Sorry, am I allowed to say that? Absolutely, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, when it all goes a bit tits up, like that's when um, that that's when actually using this approach isn't correct but it's also not using the approach. It's saying that you are when you're not. And how do you, how do we unpick? Because I think what I'm kind of a little bit worried about at the moment is that as parties through grant making um, develops traction, how, are, how do we um, hold the 
uh, the kind of like values and ethos and principles of participatory grant making so that it's not becoming kind of just almost like a, you know, look at us funders, we're doing a great thing, pat ourselves on the back, but ultimately we're just redesigning the same power dynamics that we've got within our funding now, calling it something different and saying we're doing it well. Um, and I think that's where I would be concerned about participatory grant making being used is that kind of tokenistic extractative kind of processes that might land um land funders and communities in a really horrible and uh difficult position i think there's probably something as well around um like communities and people and funders we don't know what we don't know and actually participation and meaningful participation is about not necessarily just setting communities up and saying make a decision about x y and z it's about how do you do this in a way that enables them to have the the data the evidence the knowledge the support to be able to make those decisions well like how do you enable time um, to think about things how do you ask communities the questions that they need to be asked to make the decisions that work like if you ask somebody what do you want to fund that's a different question to what should we fund to make the biggest systematic impact in this community and you'll get different answers to those like what question do communities want to be asking themselves who designs that I think is important um, Josh Lerner from People Powered has got an excellent quote around um, this and he says if you share power people will step up um, and if you don't all uh, if you share power people will step up if you don't also share support they'll fall down and I think that kind of encompasses the 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 wraparound that enables this to happen I would echo that um as well and I would also add that um that this comes back a little bit to language and vocabulary um, participation. Ben and I, by the way, tried to find a word other than participation <laughs> that was easier to say. We consulted a lot of the sources and could not come up with something. But uh, you know, let's let's make that a participatory yes, process yeah, yeah. if someone wants to come up with a better word. But what we found, um, especially, this was a bit more true on the social investment side, but in in, um, in grant making as well. Like, there's a lot of language that I think can intend to be exclusionary. A lot of language around finance and grant making that if you if you're not if you're not well versed in it you feel locked out like i will how could i possibly know about this you sort of give into that dynamic a bit and as hannah's as hannah's saying i just i think that's so important that it is possible to have these conversations with people who aren't exactly like you it's a matter of not not trying to use language to um, create a sense that you know only you and this handful of other people can possibly understand this. All these concepts that we're talking about and all the different participatory processes, like they're all ultimately available for everyone to understand. It's a matter of how we communicate them. So I think I think that's really important. But yeah, I think the point on language is vital, and like the term participatory grant making is fundamentally flawed um because it's horrible to say and spell um but also because it, it encompasses so much more than that and i think um the participatory grant making community recognizes that like it's not the perfect term and actually it should the work should adapt and change based on kind of where we're going to but it is the term that we're using to enable people to find each other and be able to uh, come together in community with others who are grappling with similar challenges or 
um or struggles and actually if you're like there's many people that are doing party grant making that would never say that they are doing party grant making they wouldn't call it that it would be called something completely different they might not even say anything about it they'd just explain you know people are involved in the community is involved in the decision making um and I think that's really important to kind of yeah flag and note that we're well aware that it's not it's not perfect um but it is what we're using to bring people together yeah I, I really like that that point about about language I mean I'd, I'd agree it's not an ideal term but I, I think it's part of you know sort of symptomatic of a wider issue in grant making and civil society I and mean, something I've been thinking about recently that there is a real sort of paucity of language I think that is holding back our ability in in some places you know not just to speak about things but genuinely to kind of understand what it is that we're getting at because it kind of limits our ability to to segment the world in the right way and actually maybe we do need just need richer language around all of this stuff so that we can not only agree on on what we're talking about but actually have you know a much richer spectrum of of different things uh, that people can talk about so they don't all have to kind of fit it under under one label um I, I just i'm aware i'm in danger of taking up uh, too much of both of your time I, I just wanted to ask as well um to to link this to a wider phenomenon that people are probably aware of i think around um a lot of the kind of prominent social movements we've seen in recent years and particularly kind of digitally enabled social movements um like black lives matter and extinction rebellion um and actually to some extent the rise in mutual aid that we've seen during the pandemic it feels as though one possible explanation for the the prominence of of lots of of those new models is a kind of untapped desire for people to get involved in in some extent you know traditional nonprofits perhaps haven't given people the opportunities for participation do you do you think there is any sense in which that's true and does it kind of suggest that there is actually you know a moment of opportunity around participation um and, and a real appetite out there for people to get involved Yes. <laughs> so I, um, I, yeah, I, this is this is one of the questions that really animated, um, really animated much of the book for us. Um, my co-author Ben and I, we both live in Washington D.C., um, which was um, it was both the epicenter of a lot of the Black Lives Mo- Black Lives Matter protests over the summer following the murder of George Floyd, and then the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And both of those events, uh, Ben and I actually rewrote the afterword to our book after January 6th because it was so indicative of this moment that we're in where we're seeing what happens when people are disempowered, who don't have a voice, and where there's um, where it, it laid out this truly unjust power structure that exists in the U.S. and, and in other places around the world. But you know, particularly here with the, you know, his, our history of, of, you know, enslaving, enslaving people and um, taking away the land of indigenous people. And then all the factors that led to, um, led to Donald Trump and his minions <laughs> rising to power. There's this, um, and Hannah, who pointed to Josh Lerner's work is absolutely right that there's a bigger question here about democracy. And I think, um, the pandemic combined with um, combined with the Black Lives Matter movement and combined with um, you know some of the um, some of the uh, issues with our elections here that there's really this is just a confluence of events that we very very rarely see and I'm you know as upsetting and um, difficult as all of it is it's also I'm also frankly a little bit relieved that we're finally getting the opportunity to air all of this out and that participation 
whether it's in grant making, whether it's in investing, whether it's in you know democracy writ large, that we're we're finally seeing we do need to hear we can't have a top-down system anymore. We need to have a system where everyone has that ownership, has that support, as Hannah said, and where we're not doing things, um, talking about participation and community engagement and name only. It's, it's, a, it's a muscle that we need to, you know, has atrophied and that we need to really exercise. And, and do you, uh, does that sort of ring true for you as well in the UK context, Hannah? Yeah, I think the Brexit vote um, is kind of indicative of, of, you know, there's lots, there's lots of different reasons. It's very complex and nuanced, uh, but there's lots of different reasons, uh, lots of reasons that people voted for Brexit. And one of those kind of recurring themes was that people feeling that decisions were being made about their lives uh, far away from where they are. Uh, we're seeing lots of kind of um, uh, community uh, conflicts within communities um, and, and how kind of people are feeling, yeah, decisions are kind of further and further away. Uh, lots of kind of political um, uh, reflections on kind of like who holds power. They always come from the same, same schools. What does what does that look like and do for people? Um, and being able to participate in kind of like decisions about people's lives, like having control over what is happening to you is such a, um, a valued thing and brings so much uh, kind of I don't know sense it can, can bring a sense of healing to communities to be able to understand what is happening um, where, with them rather than just to them. Yeah absolutely as, as you started off saying at the beginning I guess it's that going back to that idea of nothing about us without us which I think is you know, such a powerful idea very uh cleverly captured um before i i say thank you to both of you and let you both go um is there anything that you'd like to to flag up to people listening that you've got coming up either uh you know either singly or to, or together hannah maybe you want to say first yeah um uh so uh, the practice you got making community um is open for people working in this space or wanting to explore different ways of um of embedding participation in funding um if you are interested in that um i will give you my email address and you can drop me a line um we actually have some events uh coming up um in uh in in may um on the 19th of may we've got a session um around parties who are making uh, when it all hits the fan uh, which will be an exploration of when it all goes a bit wrong um what people have learned from um their mistakes um celebrating that kind of learning and adaptation to um to things not quite working out in the way that we want them to um, and we're continuously putting on kind of learning events um throughout the process so if you are interested in finding out more of that that um, do drop me an email. Great. And I should say when this goes out, uh, that, that particular event might be uh, already have happened, but I will put links in the show notes to to places where people can find information about upcoming events and, and get in touch with you. Um, and Meg, um, have you got any uh, sort of next steps with things happening on the book? Uh, yes. Well, you can order the book at uh, lettinggobook.org. Um, we're we're it's, it's shipping worldwide. Um, if you are into eBooks, it's also available on Kindle. If you just search for for you know letting go philanthropy, it should it should come up. And uh, Ben and I will be doing um, will be doing some events around the book. And we're but we're really trying not you know we see the book as being in service of this of this wider movement. So. Um, if you if you follow us on social media, uh, our accounts are linked on the lettinggobook.org homepage. We're going to be highlighting some of the work that other 
uh, participatory grant makers and community-led investors are doing. And um, yeah, just we're just really excited to see this come together. We're excited um, about all the all the energy behind um, behind the participatory grant making community and where the conversation is heading. So yeah, I would I would just point you to the website and stay tuned. Great. And and likewise, I'll put links in the show notes to, to that too. Um, just remains to say thanks ever so much to both of you for finding the time to come on the podcast. It's been great having a, a chance to talk and certainly look forward to, to seeing how uh, all of your various different efforts pan out. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Meg and to Hannah for coming on the podcast. It was great to have a chance to chat to both of them. Um, I will put links in the show notes, as I've said, to lots of things that we talked about. The uh, book that Meg's written, where you can get hold of that. The participatory grant making community that Hannah's involved with, where you can find that. And some bits that I've written and that they've written all about this kind of stuff. Uh, If you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy if you like stuff that's more about uh, historical writing and sort of theory of philanthropy. Uh, If you've got ideas for people that we could have on the podcast or topics that we could cover if we ever get around to doing some uh, topic-specific episodes again, um, you can drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, do tell all your friends about it, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Bye! (laughs) 